It's go time. You're listening live to Third Down Gamble. First down. A game for the ages. Lucky's not so lucky. And Fajardo rips the receivers. Hello, everybody. Don Charbon along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. Glad you could be along with us again for another show. Whew. We have no shortage of things to talk about this week, so uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation. One of the things I'm excited to talk about is actually an Ottawa Red Blacks win and a convincing win at that. The Ottawa Red Blacks play on Tuesday night and defeat the Edmonton Elks 34-24. Significant in this game, Ottawa gets an early lead. Up until this point in the season, Ottawa had led a game for a total of 10 minutes and 22 seconds. In this game alone, they would lead for 58 minutes and 7 seconds. The Ottawa Red Blacks have now led for over an hour in the 2021 season. Sad thing for Edmonton, it's only been Edmonton that they've held those leads over. Irony or not, Elizondo has not beaten the team that he walked out on. I think it was maybe a little bit of extra motivation for the Red Blacks in that one, coming against their old coach. Who would have thought that dressing two quarterbacks with zero CFL game experience would be what it takes to put together a solid offensive performance for the Ottawa Red Blacks? Caleb Evans looked calm and composed and excited and really, I think, led that offense to success. Uh, You know, 15 for 22, 68% completion rate touchdown passes, convincing runs. He looked fantastic in his debut. For a rookie quarterback to control the game like he did was very impressive. The fact that he didn't have any turnovers, although there was some opportunities to have some, but he he really controlled the game. He is probably the ray of light that the Red Blacks have been looking for. And we just hope that this isn't a one-off and that he continues on this arc that he started whom I feel sorry for is Taylor Cornelius 22 of 31 334 yards three touchdowns but two picks for Cornelius he's putting up Harris type numbers but do you think Cornelius is going to start this week or is it going to be Trevor Harris when they meet the Blue Bombers that's my question I I just feel bad for the guy because I think his learning curve is coming along. He met an Ottawa team that once they got going, their confidence went through the roof. They were not going to be denied. And full marks to Ottawa. Everyone's been dissing them and slapping them around and calling them the worst team in the league. And they have not quit. They got beat up pretty badly in British Columbia. But they have not quit. And I really give credit to any team that can keep plugging along in spite of everything. Absolutely. Hats off to Ottawa. It, uh, it was a game where they seemed to, once they got the lead, just get stronger and stronger, as you mentioned, Don. And, and we've seen that before. Um, of course, they beat Edmonton earlier in the year, and they seem to gain some confidence there. And my hope is that with a young quarterback leading this team, they'll find some confidence and be able to if not win a whole lot more games, at least be in every game and uh, get excited, build up for future. Because I'm I'm excited when you get some young quarterbacks like we saw in this game that haven't had a lot of CFL experience. This is the future of our league. Some of these guys are going to be the ones that are going to take over from our experienced quarterbacks that are in their late 30s. And when we see Cornelius put up some good numbers and Evans certainly controlled that game, I think there's a bright future for our young quarterbacks in the league. Caleb Evans, Taylor Cornelius, Nathan Rourke, Jake Mayer. We've seen some up-and-comers taking the field so far this season. And the future is bright. I think they've all showed poise. And they've all showed flashes of what they're capable of doing. And we, we've talked about kind of the, uh, the current generation of quarterbacks starting to age out. A lot of them are in their mid-30s and beyond. And uh, it's, it's time to see what teams are holding in their pocket for potential future and and so far from what we've seen there's some capable guys out there here's a little comparator for you between the two games edmonton total offense the first time they met 443 yards this time 450 ottawa's total offense first time they played 127 
this time 337. The difference between the two games is that Ottawa's defense won the first game. Ottawa's offense won the second. I think that's a very fair statement. They seem to have things going for them. Um, they're receiving, even rushing the ball. They had probably one of their best rushing nights of the of the season, over 100 yards as a team. So they were really clicking on all facets of that offense, which we admittedly have not seen really for even a quarter uh, in a game this season for the Red Blacks. So the, the light flipped on for them and everything seemed to go right in this one. Now, week to week, who knows what's going to happen? It could be a, a bit of a blip for the Red Blacks, but it's got to make them feel a lot better about themselves as a team. I'm happy for Coach Lapolis to get a, a solid win like that as well, coming back as a head coach. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll see where it goes from here. But I think that win also launches them back into contention in that East Division. It's going to be really tight if they win a couple more here. They've got two big games this week coming up against Toronto and Montreal. If they win those two, it's a whole new division. When you look at the Elks, they haven't defeated an Eastern team yet this year, nor have they won a home game this year. Two anomalies that you wouldn't necessarily ascribe to a Western team. Is there going to be pressure on Elizondo? Because they face Winnipeg now two more times. If Edmonton goes 2-7, and seven, what becomes the temperature in the room in Edmonton? And part of me goes to what Elizondo said at halftime. When he was interviewed by TSN, Jamie Elizondo said that he was very disappointed in the way the team played and was one of the worst halves of football that he'd seen. The team didn't respond well because they never came back to win the game. And where does that leave you now that you've made that statement? At the beginning of the season, we were expecting much better things out of the Elks. And they have truly, I think at this point, to finish 2-7, and seven, I think Elizondo has to be under some fire. The constant underperforming of this team to date, the inability to pull out games or to stay close. And when you see the team being called up by a coach, then not responding, as you mentioned, Don, I, I, I worry that the players may stop playing for Coach Elizondo. You're coming up against Winnipeg. You have two games in a row. And Winnipeg has decimated a number of teams. And I don't expect that to be any different in these next two games. So coming out of two games in a row, if they can do what they've done to other teams, and, and certainly at this point, Edmonton is not the same level as the other teams that Winnipeg's had success against. I think there's going to be a lot of questions asked. I agree with you, Pat. I think Elizondo has perched himself onto the hot seat here already. Teams, well, I think fandoms are often quick to call for a coaching change when things aren't going well. We saw it with Winnipeg. They brought in Coach O'Shea after a revolving door of coaches. He was a player's coach right away. The players bought in. He came into a team that was in a complete rebuild. They didn't have a lot of weapons, but they wanted to play for Coach O'Shea. They would run through a wall for him. And they built that into a championship team and into the team you're seeing today. If Elizondo is already questioning the loyalty and the drive of his players at the halfway point of season one, that doesn't bode well for building that team camaraderie and that buy-in. Second game of the week, Winnipeg went into British Columbia. The Blue Bombers went off, and I mean went off on the Lions, winning 30-9. to That score probably flatters the Lions because I think Winnipeg was probably capable of a lot more. And this number alone should tell you the night it was for Winnipeg. Zach Kolaris throws 28 of 33 for 417 yards and two touchdowns. I think you're right. The score doesn't tell the entire story. Winnipeg had two fumbles lost that could have and should have been more points. So this was, despite those fumbles, probably the most complete game that the Blue Bombers have played in all three facets this season. Their field goal kicker came in after a, a tough first game. Ali Murtado was three for three on field goals, made all of his converts. Janarian Grant was back in the return game. He didn't bust one long, but he had some jump in his step. The defense gave Riley Fitz all night, and the offense was clicking on all cylinders. So for them to actually lose the turnover battle 2-1 to one and still win by 21 points, this was a, a dominant performance. 17-27 for 177, though. Not Mike Riley like 
numbers. Absolutely. Winnipeg's defense has been dominant all year. Mike Riley, this this was flashback to 2019, beginning of the season, where he just didn't have time to even set up in the pocket and make a throw. So the defense domination certainly impacted BC's ability to get anything going. But as Heath mentioned, this offensive display by Zach Caleros was unbelievable. Kenny Lawler was on fire. It seemed that every ball that was coming his way had the opportunity to go for a big play, and, and he uh, was extremely successful, but not just him. It was a complete offensive game. I think Zach Caleros maybe took a step forward to potentially cement himself in that MVP race. Kenny Lawler, 12 catches for 205 yards and a touchdown. Longest was 44. The unfortunate part of this game for the British Columbia Lions, aside from the loss, was that Lucky Whitehead coming across the middle and I kind of blame Michael Riley for this. He catches the ball and gets lit up by Brandon Alexander. Totally clean hit. Nothing wrong with it. But his hand gets set up against the ball and gets twisted really funny. And the next thing you know, he's carrying his arm around and he's got a broken wrist. Courage beyond courage. He tried to actually come back into the game and play. He was never going to be able to catch the ball. And even on the sideline, he was only using the one hand. Even as a decoy... If Winnipeg wasn't aware of what was going on, at least that may have worked for a little while. Yeah, the one thing that the Bomber defense brought was some hard hits. Richardson, with his first game back, had a sack. They all got to Riley. There was, I believe, six quarterback sacks altogether that night. Uh, Theodric Hansen had one. Jackson, Jeff Coat, Jefferson both, again, had sacks. And uh, like you said, Brandon Alexander came in hard. We know what Adam Big Hill brings on every play as well. There's some BC Lions that had to be feeling pretty beat up after this one. Another telling statistic there is, is 16 yards rushing. I mean, BC was not able to get anything going there. And so they could line up and tee off on Riley, which they did all night long. 510 yards of offense for the Blue Bombers, 248 for the Lions. That's a 2-1 to one stat right there. Time of possession, 35-24. to 24. You can just go up and down the line, pick your poison in terms of what you want to hit the Lions with because they were outclassed and outmatched in this football game. It doesn't mean that they're as poor as what they showed. It just does mean that on that night, Winnipeg was on fire and BC was not. The thing that really caught my attention throughout the entire game was how many 50-50 balls were being caught by the Winnipeg receivers. There, were, there was more than one occasion that I felt that the defender had simply not turned around or overran the play, and the bomber receiver made the catch. And Caleros also threw into some pretty narrow windows for some completions as well. So that's an indication that the quarterback is feeling his receivers are on. He's throwing up 50-50s, and he's threading the needle, and they are coming up with the ball time and again. So that's a, a very confident Zach Caleros with that receiving core right now. And we'd seen some drops from some guys earlier in the season on some very catchable balls. So it's got to feel good for that offense to have kind of come together like that. It it does reflect the confidence of the quarterback and it, it shows that this offense is coming around. It was sort of the question mark at the beginning of the season. The defense was there. When would the offense catch up? Well, I think they've done it. The next game that we look at is the Saturday afternoon game, Montreal at Hamilton. And unbeknownst to any of us, this one turned into an absolute epic. The Alouettes, in overtime, in Hamilton, win 23-20 to for the first time ever. Orlando Steinhauer, as, as, as head coach, loses in Hamilton. The Alouettes, who had struggled come into this game and find a way. Vernon Adams Jr. showed me he had more guts than I could ever give anyone credit for. Somehow overcame a twisted ankle and led his team to win. He did. Their, their fourth quarter, putting 17 points up to come from behind. It was really impressive. Watching the game before, I was kind of questioning whether Montreal had much, but certainly they stuck with it. Vernon Adams was able to find the receivers and make plays when they had to. The uh, catch in the end zone uh, by Eugene Lewis, I thought was a phenomenal catch and throw. Vernon Adams looked confident sitting in the pocket. His line protected him and he had an opportunity to get it there. And uh, what an exciting finish after that as well. 
again with Vernon Adams Jr., you've you live by them and you die by them. Two touchdowns and two interceptions again, but as Don mentioned, a gutsy performance. He is a, a fiery character that can inspire his teammates to do great things, and they all stepped up in that fourth quarter and played with a purpose and got them back into that game and got the win in overtime. I think it was a, a great team effort for them. And uh, Kahari Jones is a great compliment, I've said before, to Vernon Adams in the style that he played as a quarterback and as a mentor and almost big brother, I think, for Vernon Adams at this point to really allow him to be the gunslinger that, that he is. Matthew Schiltz comes into the game goes 4 of 7 for 108 yards, and his big play was Taquan Bray for 68 yards. When interviewed at halftime, Kahari Jones said, we think that Vernon is ready to go. We're going to give him a try and see what happens. And I thought that was interesting because Schultz hadn't done anything to hurt the team, but there's still that belief that Vernon Adams Jr. is the leader and you need your leader out there. And that's that intangible we often talk about with quarterbacks. You win with or you win because. Well, I think in Vernon Adams' case, you win because. Adams was 17 to 26 for 209. Let's give some kudos to Taylor Bertolet, who on the final play of the game, with a little bit of a breeze in his face, kicked a 55-yarder that just barely found its way over the crossbar. At first look, I thought he'd actually been short and it hit the base of the of the post. And it wasn't until the, the arms went up that, oh my goodness, he made this. This is unbelievable. The angle of the replay really was interesting to watch because it just barely cleared the post and yet hit the front of the goal post, the lower portion. What an exciting kick and, and well done, Taylor. I thought he missed it as well. I thought he came up short. I kind of looked away. And look back up and all of a sudden I see the Tiger Cats celebrating on the sidelines and I had to kind of rewind to see what happened because I, I was in dis- disbelief as well. What a, a clutch kick to give Hamilton the chance. Didn't come through in the end, but as far as a game-saving play, it's right up there. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster that the Alouettes were on in the last five minutes of the game? They start a drive, they go down the field, get picked off at the, both the five-yard line. Hamilton then punts. Montreal has to do it all over again. And on third down and long, they get the touchdown. They think they've got it. And the Ticats go side to side down the field. I hate it when teams rush three and drop nine. If you want to stop a team in the last 30 seconds, blitz them. Make that quarterback throw it faster than he wants to. You're probably going to win more times than not. They get close enough. The Tiger Cats do. They make the field goal. And then in overtime... Of all the things, Sean Thomas Erlington and the connection between him and and, uh, Mazzoli didn't work out on the handoff. I don't know if Erlington's arm hit the ball or what it was, but anyway, it went down on the ground. And famously, earlier in the game, he had fumbled a football into the end zone and recovered it for a touchdown. Alouettes recover, and all they have to do then is just run two plays, kick the field goal, and they win. The problem with rushing three defenders late in a game like that is you don't put any pressure on the quarterback you're absolutely right and it gives the receivers a chance to get open that's all that the quarterback needs because nobody's coming in his face he's got time back there to see things develop and as soon as somebody bursts away from a defensive back it's an easy catch and a a smart play so you know hats off to Hamilton for getting that done and get back into field goal range but I agree 100% Montreal's defense could have given them some different looks and put some more pressure on Mazzoli in that last minute. It had to be tremendously disappointing for Hamilton coming back on the high of missing the field goal and then every mistake in an overtime that's sudden death is certainly exacerbated as you take a look at, at that opportunity. That fumble elsewhere in the game may have been something they could recover from. But at that moment, you know that Montreal is going to run twice. They're going to line it up and give their field goal kicker a chance to win that game, which they did. Credit to them. Jeremiah Mazzoli goes 23 of 33 for 223. He didn't look that comfortable in the game until right at the end when he had to move the team down the field. Brandon Banks still is an enigma in that offense. Braylon Addison's uh, return to the lineup was 
really huge because he went seven receptions for 73 yards. But Brandon Banks, four receptions for 15 yards. That's just unlike him. He may still have some lingering injuries that he's working through as well, but we've kind of talked all season. It hasn't been the Brandon Banks that we were expecting to see based on the performance he gave in 2019. And I don't know if he's going to start getting frustrated down the stretch here as well. And it might be a a real challenge to keep him motivated and keep him in some of those plays. I think we can say that of the entire Hamilton offense, to be honest. Like Banks is a big portion of it in the past, but but they just seem to have underachieved this year. I came into the year thinking that they might be one of the better offenses in the league, and they certainly aren't there yet. Their defense is what's been winning Hamilton many games. It makes me wonder that if it's Dane Evans that really makes that offense go. The final game of the weekend, Saturday late afternoon or evening, depending on where you are, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders went into Calgary, and on the last podcast, I called it Death Valley for the Rough Riders, and it proved to be once again the Stampeders winning 23-17, to 17, a 25,516 attendance in the uh, stands, and that's even with COVID restrictions in Calgary, that's a big number. Saskatchewan went down early. Bo Levi Mitchell struck on his first two drives with touchdowns. Kind of a strange call by Saskatchewan head coach to go for it on third and four and, and, you know, make and break play. We're throwing it down the field for a big possession. Yes, Moore was open, but if you miss that, it certainly gave Calgary a strong field position where they took advantage of of the opportunity and, and put the ball in the end zone when they needed to. So credit to them. And then Calgary gambled on their own third down as well and were successful. And I think you see the difference, a long strike versus a short, high percentage play. That Fajardo pass to Kyron Moore missed him by about three yards. Had they connected, that was a touchdown. They had caught Calgary on that play. I don't see anything wrong with what they did. It just, the execution wasn't there. A much higher percentage play for the Riders, though, because they've only been hitting on 22% of their long passes over 20 yards this year. There's something off, and for the coach to make that call on uh, what hasn't been a high percentage play for them. It, it certainly had the make or break potential that you talk about, Don, but but there's some question based on the success the Riders have had this year. And we, we saw some frustration from Cody Fajardo in this game as well. Uh, a usual, usual inspirational leader on that team started to question, I think, a little bit of the receivers and a little bit of the play calling. Now, he did have a press conference on Tuesday where he has kind of taken ownership of some of those mistakes as well but uh, it's certainly not the attitude that you're used to seeing from Cody Fajardo you know it has to have been a frustrating loss for them I think they they felt they were going into Calgary and had a chance to uh, end that Death Valley curse and it didn't come to fruition. Fajardo goes 25 of 44 for 269 and interception of course that one being the last time the Rough Riders had the ball the interesting thing about Fajardo's post-game interview was that he was hot about the Rough Riders' inability to capitalize. And he did put it on himself a bit, but he also put it on the receivers for not winning 50-50 balls. And this was a huge element in this whole process because we just talked about how Winnipeg, with Calaris, was getting his receivers to catch those 50-50s, and in Saskatchewan, they're not. And as Pat pointed out, less than or roughly one in five of these passes are completed. That's a very low percentage for that type of uh, attack. Moss, uh, Jason Moss, the offensive coordinator, had been asked coming into the game, why hadn't the team tried more? And he said, point blank, we've tried, we've missed. I think they're, they're the fifth highest in the league in the attempts, but yeah, they just are not successful in those attempts over 20 yards. This offense is designed for short yardage passes, seem to be what they go to first. And I think that we heard some frustration from Cody Fajardo in some of the play calling potentially as well. But I think it came out of his frustration with the inability to make those big plays. He only threw for 57% approximately of his passes. That's low for Cody Fajardo. Um, He struggled a little bit in that game. Is the inability to complete the long passes related to the absence of Shaq Evans? Do you think him coming back changes that outlook for them a little bit more? And all of a sudden, even if they're completing 30, 35% of those plays, is that a game changer? 
it's worth a thought, but Braden Linnaeus has been the guy that's been getting those deep passes. I believe he's caught four this year. And that means someone is doing it. The question is, why aren't you connecting with the others that are out there? Uh, they've got Keon Schaefer-Baker, who is clearly going to be a star in this league. And he did make a great catch down the sideline in that game against Calgary. That's one aspect, but maybe they are missing a Shaq Evans on the other side. It's hard to say. He is due back, but not probably to maybe the end of the month. And in the interim, to answer that question a little bit, the Rough Riders have gone out and signed recent NFL Buffalo Bills cut, Duke Williams, who, of course, we know through the CFL playing for Edmonton prior to his NFL stint. And he certainly was very prolific at the long pass. I think he had the highest average in both years that he played in terms of yards per catch. Um, And I think he's going to be a second option when Shaq Evans comes back, where they may be able to go along and and hopefully have some more success. But again, I I think we do have to give credit in this game to Calgary. Calgary came out and played a a strong game. Uh, Bo Levi Mitchell did get injured. We did see Jake Mayer come in. And uh, heading into the next game, we'll, we'll see where we stand on the quarterbacks. Bo Levi Mitchell goes 16 to 25, 184, two touchdowns and an interception. However, he gets hit high by Micah Johnson. It's not long after that he pulls himself from the game. And it looks like now that Mayer is going to be the starter against Saskatchewan on Saturday. The story coming out from Calgary after the game on the Stampeders app uh, provided by Calgary Sun sports was that Mitchell finally admitted that the shoulder has been bothering him all season and he's just kept it quiet. Now that's something that we touched upon in the last episode that I speculated that the leg was never the issue, the shoulder was. Well, now he has admitted that yes, the shoulder has been an issue. I'm sure the coach has been aware. Jake Mayer is probably the guy they have to go to for the foreseeable future until that shoulder writes itself. I think one of the interesting things that happened this past week was with the BC Lions dropping that game against Winnipeg, that third place spot in the West is still very much up for grabs. Calgary needs to look at it objectively and think, who gives us our best chance to go out and grab that third place playoff spot? And it's probably Jake Mayer right now. And we, we kind of dissected that in our last episode. And, uh, you know, if Bo Levi has now admitted to having some shoulder issues, then it's Jake Mayer's team to see if he can lead them into the playoffs. Bo Levi Mitchell has not thrown for 300 in a game yet. Jake Mayer has not thrown for less than 300 in a game yet. Dave Dickinson is probably looking at the situation going, we can't afford any more losses. We've got to win. And does Bo do that for us? Now, Bo joked about getting the, the special sauce that's been used on Michael Riley's arm to make sure that he could get through the game. But he's more in the uh, Matt Nichols category than he is in the Michael Riley category of the threshold that he has to achieve. Second down. A rare five-game week in the CFL. Can life be any better? Get a lot of chance to watch football, and that's going to be great. Another an, another Wednesday night game this week. It's uh, it's added some interesting wrinkles into your normal weekly routine to have a Tuesday game and a Wednesday game. Uh, it's been a lot of fun so far. Absolutely it has. Now, let's get right to it. And all of these odds are powered by... Bet Regal, and we thank them for that. Again, we are going with odds as they are as of Tuesday, the 5th of October. So let's get this going with Ottawa at Toronto. Ottawa plus 8.5 over under 47. Not a lot of respect shown for the Red Blacks after what they did to the Elks. Does that reflect more on Ottawa or more on the Elks? <laughs> McLeod Bethel Thompson has been given the nod for the Toronto Argonauts this week. Caleb Evans will make his second career CFL start. And uh, I think anything can happen in this one. I would think with the calmness of McLeod Bethel Thompson, it's Toronto's game to lose. But if 
Caleb Evans continues to show the kind of spark and enthusiasm he did in last week's game, he might be able to lead Ottawa into another upset win. Interesting about this line, because Toronto averages 20.3 points per game. Ottawa, in spite of all their woes and offense, still averages 17.3 points per game. The Ottawa defense, I think, has to be respected. If Caleb Evans does what he does again, this line may be a little high. I do think he may have more difficulty this week with the Toronto defense. Uh, and Toronto has also played very well at home. They're 3-0 at home, and, and we can see how Ottawa will do on the road. Uh, I would like to see Caleb Evans play a great game. I'd like to see this game go down to the wire, and I'm hopeful that it will. I think on the over-under of 47 points, I would take the under, and I would say Toronto wins this game, but they do not cover the 8.5-point spread. Hmm. Interesting. I'm going to go with the odds makers this time. I think I'm going to lean towards Toronto, especially at home, taking care of business. The Argonauts have played very well at home. They did have a little bit of luck against the Ticats. I think I am going to say that Toronto should be able to cover this. They have started well in the games as well. And, and where we saw Ottawa have some success was getting up early. So as long as Toronto can protect the ball and get off to a good start, I think they have the opportunity when they're at home to build momentum. And I think they should cover the spread in this case. The other thing that we cannot dismiss is that Chris Jones now has had a couple more weeks with the defense. And even though he has the title of defensive consultant, though somebody already has the title of defensive coordinator, they're just not there right now. He is, for all intents and purposes, the defensive coordinator of the Toronto Argonauts. It's going to start to reveal itself now, his influence on that defense. And I think you're going to see a lot more pressure. I know Jones loves four-man fronts and, and putting on pressure that way, but I think with a quarterback that's only in his second game, you may see more effort coming out of the linebackers and the halfbacks. That very well could be, but Caleb Evans looks like he has the ability to run the ball well as well. So an important part for that Toronto defense, if they are going to try to apply the pressure, is to contain and keep Caleb in the pocket and not allow him to get to the outside because he he looks like the, the prototypical CFL quarterback that could scamper for 60, 70 yards in a game and change it with his feet opposed to his arm. The other player who can certainly impact this game would be uh, Demonte Dedman. Uh, his return capability with two touchdown punt returns in a row in the last two games, if he's able to put another one up on the board, uh, that, that could help Ottawa stay in this game and potentially win if they're able to see lots of uh, momentum come after a play like that. Friday night, Edmonton takes the field again in Winnipeg. Now, the Elks are plus 13 in Winnipeg with an over-under of 42.5. And again, I know I talk about this a lot, but when you're plus 13 or minus 13 in Winnipeg's case and they're only thinking 42 points are scored, that's not a lot of room to win by 13 points. Tells me that the faith in the Winnipeg defense is still strong. Edmonton is just not looked on as a threat in Winnipeg. One thing working against the Blue Bombers this week is... League-leading receiver Kenny Lawler has been suspended one game after a DUI charge earlier this week. I'm going to get on my soapbox here very quickly and say that the Blue Bombers have done a great job of handling this situation. They didn't try to hide anything. Kenny Lawler didn't try to hide anything. He told the team right away. They told the league. They sus The team has suspended him for the one game. The league hasn't weighed in at all yet at this point. As we speak here on Tuesday, Kenny Lawler went before the press today as well, issued an apology, accepted all blame, and admitted that he acted irresponsibly. And so I just want to say, in light of a bad situation, the Blue Bombers have done everything that they can to show that they've got this situation under control as best as they can. And one game seems to be sort of the, the average that happens in these circumstances. We had one game for... Uh, Odell Willis, when this happened to him, Charleston Hughes, when it happened to him. It's not unreasonable that one game, but 
I'm with you on the Winnipeg response. I thought they handled it well and were on top of the message very quickly. So many times you see teams wait to see what the reaction is and then decide to respond. Winnipeg got out in front. When we look at the over-under in this game at 42.5, I, I think it's very possible that we could go over. I would be betting over on this one. Winnipeg's offense, even though they're missing Lawler, uh, you can plug uh, an experienced receiver of Naaman Roosevelt's into that slot, and I think they should be able to continue to play well. The Elks continue to struggle uh, in many cases, and I think that this is an opportunity for them to actually cover the spread and go over the 42.5. Trevor Harris is likely to get the start for the Elks in this one. We know he's capable of putting up yards, but against a defense like Winnipeg, I wouldn't be surprised if the Bombers get a couple of interceptions in this one as well. They are very dangerous and hungry on that defense. And I'm with you on this one, Pat. I believe the Bombers win. I believe they cover the spread. And if they can build on the momentum they had against the BC Lions last week, the 42 and a half is going to be too low in this one. They're going over as well. The Elks are getting themselves into a very interesting and very difficult situation. A loss in Winnipeg puts them at two and six. With six games to go, one more against Winnipeg, two against Saskatchewan. And of course, the three that are bunched together at the end of the season, where does Edmonton go on a winning streak to correct the course of the herd? I don't think they do at this point. I think they're in a very tough situation. We already talked about how difficult those last three games at the end of the season are going to be. And this stretch right now, coming up against Winnipeg three times in four weeks, is very tough with the way that the Blue Bombers are playing right now. One thing that I want to see in the next little while is how the players respond to Elizondo calling them out. This is, I think, a pivotal point for the Elks. The schedule that does not favor them. And uh, I think that they're going to probably at some point have to decide whether or not they're going to take a look at a coaching change. Famously, Rich Stubler, who's been a phenomenal assistant coach for all these years in the Canadian Football League, had a chance with the Toronto Argonauts and didn't make a full season. Not everybody's cut out to be a head coach. I'm not saying that Elizondo is or isn't. The Elks are in a tough spot, and that's a franchise that is not used to losing. It's going to be very interesting to see what becomes of the situation. Now, the question mark, too, is the soft tissue issue in his neck with Trevor Harris. He was on again, off again with the uh, the sixth game. More information came to light, and it's it was kind of fascinating. If Edmonton puts him on the sixth game, he cannot practice with the team for at least four weeks of those six. And that entire stretch against Winnipeg would be lost. By pulling him off immediately, I don't know if the, the team loses anything in the long run by doing it that fast, because it seemed like one day, then a few days later. I'm not sure what the league rules are in terms of going on and off the sixth game. It's not there to be a, a transactional thing. It's supposed to be there to give players time to heal up. I don't know what Edmonton does. Do you go with Harrison Winnipeg? Do you want to go with Cornelius in Winnipeg? If he can cut the interceptions out of his repertoire, he's putting up some decent numbers. Edmonton total yards per game at 403. Uh, th th that's a great offense, but you're coming up against the most outstanding defense in the league. And I think that they're going to struggle. I think Harris, in this case, if he is healthy enough to play, probably gives them the best opportunity to, uh, if not win, at least stay close in this game. One thing that's key for Edmonton, though, is keeping Trevor Harris upright if he does play. We saw Winnipeg get to BC quarterback six times last week. And that kind of performance against a guy coming off of the injured list could be a very, very tough night for Trevor Harris in his first game back. Absolutely. I think where this may vary with this team is that, that Edmonton does have an established running game and uh, they should be able to uh, hopefully run the ball more and maybe take some pressure off that quarterback rush. Winnipeg has allowed eight touchdowns this season. That's a ridiculously low number. Edmonton, we chronicled at the beginning of the season how they could move between the 20s and not score touchdowns. Looking at those statistics in the West Division right now, if Winnipeg even just goes 3-3 three and three over the remaining six games, it's very, very tough for anybody to catch them. The Riders would have to win out to get to 11 wins to pass them, or the BC Lions would have to win all six of their remaining games and beat Winnipeg by 22 points in Winnipeg. 
in order to claim first place. We're getting very close to the Bombers having a stranglehold on first place in the division, and a win against Edmonton this week will further solidify that grip. On Saturday, the Rough Riders host the Calgary Stampeders in part two of the three-part miniseries. Stampeders are plus 2.5 with an over-under of 43.5. These over-unders tend to fall into a very tight window. Calgary likely starting Jake Mayer at quarterback, given the problems that Bo Levi Mitchell has with his shoulder. Mayer almost beat the uh, Winnipeg Blue Bombers in Winnipeg. One more completion, and uh, that field goal would have been five yards closer and would have made it. I don't think they lose a step with him in terms of skill set. 300 yards a game so far. As we mentioned in first down, he's an exciting quarterback, and I think he's one of the potential quarterbacks that we're going to see in the future. 300 yards a game is outstanding, and, and Saskatchewan's defense has allowed a number of yards per game as well. So I think that's a good matchup for Mayer. Uh, in this case, I do think Saskatchewan at home uh, should give them an advantage that they, they should be able to, I think, take this one. I'm hopeful that uh, you know they do because I'd like to see that third game really mean more and, and be a swing game in, in the season series. Back-to-back games are always difficult to sweep. We've seen that numerous times throughout this league. And only for that reason and the fact that this game is in Regina, I'm giving the Rough Riders the edge in this one. I think it does come down to the rubber match between these two teams to determine who wins the season series. It's only a two and a half point spread. So that means I'm picking the Rough Riders by at least a field goal. I think they're good for that. 43 and a half. I think it's going to be a a tightly contested game, but slightly over that. So I'm going to go over. It's going to be about a 26, 23-ish kind of game. Just be uh, a a well-contested match, I believe, but given the Rough Riders, this one. Duke Williams, COVID protocol. Shaq Evans, still not ready to go. They're going to probably play the Stampeders back in Calgary on the 23rd. They're not available for this game. If Jake Mayer plays and goes right through to the end, I kind of think that the Stampeders could cover this and not only cover, but pull the upset. Well, this will certainly be a, a signature game for him if he does go in to Regina and beat the Rough Riders. I think that that bodes well for his future as a starting quarterback in this league. It could bode well for a starting quarterback job in Calgary, given the situation with Bo Levi's arm. In this case, I do think the Saskatchewan Rough Riders will be able to cover that spread, and I think that uh, we should have more than 43.5 points as well, so I'm going to agree with Heath on both counts. I think they should be able to cover and go over. Doubleheader Monday, Thanksgiving weekend, completes the five-game sked. The Red Blacks play for the second time in five days with the matchup in Montreal against the emotionally probably drained Alouettes. Plus 6.5 for the Red Blacks in this game. Again, the road team is the dog. An over-under of 50.5. This is a real nod to the Alouettes' offense. This overline surprises me somewhat. I, I know that Evans had a great game, but Montreal has struggled to put up points. They put up points in the fourth quarter in their last game to come back. If I were betting, I think I'd take the under on this one. I do think Montreal should be able to win this game by more than 6.5. Montreal is the number one scoring offense in the Canadian Football League, followed by Winnipeg. They average over 25 points a game. And I do think they can put up that that amount of points. I'm just not sure the Red Blacks will be able to do that again. Montreal at home haven't won a game yet. I think I'm going in the same direction as Pat on this one. The 50 and a half seems quite high. It looks like the odds makers are expecting Montreal to go off and get a lot of points in this one. I believe the Red Blacks are going to be competitive. Montreal has to win it by a touchdown to cover the spread. I believe they do that. So I'm going Montreal to cover and taking the under 50 and a half. Final game, Toronto Argonauts in Hamilton. Game three of their series. In fact, Ottawa-Montreal, that's the third time they'll be playing as well. Toronto is plus 4.5 over under 42.5. This game, if Toronto hadn't played on the Wednesday before, I would be fairly confident that I would be betting with the Argos. Jeremiah Mazzoli did not impress me against Montreal. That offense, other than Braylon Addison, looks out of sync. And if Brandon Banks is not a palpable threat in this game, I don't know if Hamilton wins. My my initial look at this game was 
to take Hamilton, but you know, the, the more we sit here and talk about the situation and everything, who's quarterbacking, all of those aspects, I certainly will take Toronto to beat the, beat the spread of four and a half in this one. I'm not sure I'm going to take them to win outright. I think it's still Hamilton's game to win. Will be a close one again. And I'm going to take the over 42 and a half. I believe there's going to be a bit more offense in this one. It's going to be a, a wide open game. We know the rivalry Toronto and Hamilton is one of the great ones in Canadian sports. I guess as of right now, I'll still I'll take Hamilton, but Toronto to beat the four and a half. I'm going to take Toronto to win outright and Toronto to end the game to go over this the number. With this rivalry, I think these two teams have an opportunity to have a Thanksgiving classic game here. Um, Toronto has a powerful offense. I think we're seeing their defense get stronger. I do know they have two games, but in this case, I think Toronto should be able to win this game easily. Uh, I, I think they're going to come out strong, and I think this will be a statement game as they move towards the playoffs. I'm going to take Toronto, and I think I'll go over on this game as well. Updating our podcast pool tracker this week. For those of, the, of you that don't know, it's a ranked pick'em where we assign a point value to how confident we are in each team winning that week's game. Interesting tie at the top with Dini 13 and CFL America tied with 52 points overall. But if you look at the correct choices, Dini 13 is 19 and 16, and CFL America has 22 correct and 13 incorrect, which means Dini has been very confident in their four and three point games and have gotten a lot of those right whereas CFL America is by pure volume holding with Dini in this one. Uh, Gromit 13 and Snack Bites Pete are tied two points behind them for third with 19 and 16 records overall as well. Third down. And it's time for Fantasy Picks. I think I finished 10th again. Well, you didn't finish last. I did again. (laughs) <laughs> well, you guys are being kind to me by finishing below me every week because I feel like I'm an incompetent. Anybody who had Kenny Lawler last week probably did quite well and got in the money. And Zach Kolaris. Exactly. So who's who's the guy this That's week? That's 60 points right there, isn't it? That's about what I finished with. I did not have either one of those two. <laughs> I didn't even make that this week. It was horrible. So It was the first time that I loaded up on Rough Riders and that may be the last time. I, I didn't load up, but it seemed like everyone I picked uh, had a tough game. You know, you pick someone like Whitehead, think he's going to get good, and he gets you point one. <laughs> yeah, one, one catch, and then he got hit. <laughs> yep. A bad break. That's all that was. Yep. Yeah. Just uh, it all went against me this week. So hopefully it all went against me last week. So hopefully this week is better. Oh, that karma. All right, Pat, quarterback and running back. Wednesday game is not included in our picks. And to be fair, this one makes sense to me because two teams play twice in this week 10. So right after you said you loaded up on Saskatchewan players, I'm going to tell you my first two are Saskatchewan players. I went with Fajardo and Powell's. I don't know. Maybe I'll finish last again. He, well, I, I had Fajardo last week and he let me down. So maybe I'm, I'm chasing the hot streak, but I'm going with Zach Caleros and his 400 plus yards from the past week. And William Stanback from the Montreal Alouettes as my running back. I'm going with Vernon Adams Jr. after that uh, heroic performance that he gave against uh, Hamilton, 10,600 on DraftKings. His opponent's rank is ninth, though, which is nice. And James Wilder Jr. against the uh, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, whose rushing stats, they are last in the CFL in terms of giving up rushing yards. So I thought, what the heck, I'll start with them. All right, wide receiver, Pat. I know mine are probably going to be completely different. I spent a fair amount of money with Fajardo and Powell. So as wide receiver, I've got uh, Cunningham at 6,900 and Jake Wieneke at 7,300. I don't think taking Montreal Alouettes is a bad idea with Vernon Adams throwing them the ball. I also have Jake Wieneke for 7,300. And I am going with Hergie Mayala for the Calgary Stampeders against Saskatchewan for 5,900. For my wide receivers, I don't know if Nick Dembski necessarily qualifies as one, but I'm going with Nick Dembski against the uh, Elks, 6,600. And I'm also picking up Herjee Mayala against the Rough Riders, 5,900 on DraftKings. Let's move over to Flex. Pat. 
I'm going with uh, Gian Schaefer Baker with the Riders for 4800 and I currently am sitting with Huff at 4900 I know he's questionable at this point, but he did practice on Tuesday. Heath? Continuing with the Montreal Alouettes, BJ Cunningham, that Pat also has as a wide receiver, I've picked up as a flex for 6900 and I believe making his season debut for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Naaman Roosevelt. Uh, 6700 for Naaman, and I think right now with Kenny Lawler out, Drew Wolitarski a little bit of an unknown with a possible knee injury. It's going to open up some more options for Winnipeg, and I am hoping that Naaman comes in and has a great debut with the Bombers. After what Matthew Schultz did with Quan Bray, I'm kind of thinking maybe Quan Bray is finding his stride with the Alouettes offense, so I'm going to pick him at 7900 against Ottawa. And Ricardo Lewis for the Rough Riders. This is kind of going to be a make-or-break game for him because with Duke Williams and Shaq Evans coming onto the roster, he might be the odd man out. So this is his chance to really make a name for himself against the Stampeders. 3700 though. He's still quite cheap. Defense, Pat. I have trouble stepping away from the Blue Bombers after the showing they had last week and coming up against the Elk. I think good value in the 5600 I spent there. Heath? I am torn on this one between the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the Montreal Alouettes, but I believe at this point I am going to take Montreal over Ottawa, uh, 5,000 points for the Montreal defense. That is an interesting choice. I like it, actually. I'm with Pat, though. I think I can't get away from the Winnipeg defense. The one thing that they didn't do against BC was score defensive touchdowns. They did that the last time they played Edmonton. And at home, I'm kind of counting on that. So I'm going to go with the Blue Bombers defense against the Edmonton Elks on Friday night. Final thoughts, guys. I love these long weekends where we have the holiday Monday games. It gives you something to do on that day off. And uh, we've got a couple of really good ones. And like I said, there's you can't go wrong with a Toronto Argonauts Hamilton Tiger Cats game on a holiday weekend. Should be a barn burner. And... As I alluded to earlier, if Winnipeg can beat the Elks on this one, it's going to be really tough for anybody to catch them for first place in the West. Rare to have five games, so I'm excited to be able to sit back and watch all five games, ending with the doubleheader on Monday. I think it's going to be an outstanding week of football. I'm really happy that it's the East that's the showcase on the holiday Monday. Ottawa at Montreal, Toronto at Hamilton back-to-back. Biggest game of the weekend, though, is going to be played in Regina on Saturday. The winner of that one is going to have a tremendous amount of momentum going into the final stretch. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast audio worth watching.